Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, welcome to a new season of The Victory Kitchen. I am so excited uh, to be bringing this special episode to you today. It is episode 18, Oh Canada. And yes, happy Canada Day. Uh, I wanted to um, pay special tribute to our friendly and super cool neighbors up north and talk about our wartime rationing relationship with them during World War II. I'm going to be having a special guest on the show Kelsey Loney. She's a friend of mine that we met through Instagram, and she is just as big of a ration nerd as I am, and she studies a lot about Canadian rationing. So she'll be coming on later in the episode. To start with, uh, I wanted to talk about the special relationship the U.S. had with Canada, and especially their food relationship during World War II. Canada was a dominion of the United Kingdom. And when Britain declared war on Germany on September 3rd, 1939, Canada was right there behind them declaring war against Germany on September 10th, 1939. And yes, back then, Canada was referred to as the Dominion. And I saw that term quite a lot in the newspapers that I was doing research in. There were a lot of worries about when the U.S. entered the war and how American rationing would affect Canada. Now, we already had kind of a relationship, wartime related relationship with Canada before we entered the war. We even had a spy school, a secret spy school that was established just over the border into Canada during the time that the United States was still kind of in the isolationist mentality. But President Roosevelt, I think, had his uh, eye on everything and um, was just preparing just in case. Now, um, Canada kept a close eye on American rationing as we had a very tight relationship with them for imports and exports. So when the American rationing program was first announced, it wasn't very clear how it would affect Canadians, but it was a definite real concern. What was clear was that as the war progressed, there was going to be less all around of the food people wanted. And as we know, that was definitely the case for Americans for sure. As Americans announced they would be rationing canned goods in nineteen, the end of 1942, beginning of 1943, Canada was worried they might need to ration canned goods as well due to fears of a run on grocery stores for the limited canned goods available. There wasn't actually a large demand for canned goods in Canada, except for a small percentage of the population. So imposing rationing of an equal quantity of canned goods per capita would make an inadequate supply for those who relied on the canned foods. Uh, The problems that faced the U.S. and Canada in the supply and processing of fruits and vegetables differed. In a Canadian newspaper, Um, There was an article entitled Rationing Undecided for Canned Goods, and this was from January 1943. It stated that 
the greater portion of fruits and vegetables in the U.S. had to be canned because of several reasons. One, big citrus fruit crops, which require processing and were not matched in Canada. Two, the fact that the U.S. Army places all its troops, whether in training at home or serving abroad, on the same export ration. Thus, Secretary Willard stated that nearly half our production of canned fruits and vegetables will go to our boys in the service, mainly in this country. Canada has a special army ration for its home forces or service forces in training here. They are fed on a domestic basis with fresh vegetables or fruits rather than canned goods. And three, the United States assumes responsibility for feeding most of its forces that are on active service, whereas the Canadian army in Britain, for example, is fed by the UK and requires no concentrated or export ration from this country. So what he's talking about in this article is that, first of all, a lot of citrus fruits were canned because it was um, an easier way to preserve them. And Canada definitely does not have the climate to grow oranges. Secondly, the U.S. Army approached feeding their troops home and abroad differently than Canadians. So the U.S. Army um, always had them on this export ration. And a lot of that was through canned goods. Um, which was one reason why canned goods were in such short supply and um, required a lot of ration stamps because besides the tin, that the army and the other military branches used these canned goods for feeding their troops. Um, and then also something that I found the most fascinating is that while the Canadians, they fed their soldiers at home on this domestic diet using local vegetables and fruits that were available. Um, when, the Canadian soldiers went abroad, like to the UK, the UK fed those troops because Canada was part of the United Kingdom. But the United States had to export all their food for their soldiers, no matter where they went. Um, and so they were feeding them um, and had to ship out all that food. So those are some really interesting distinctions between the two countries and how food was being used. Another aspect of rationing canned goods in Canada that didn't make much sense was that in order to be able to properly control rationing, there needed to be a bottleneck in supply and demand that needed to exist in order to place controls on them. But there was no bottleneck in the supply in Canada except in their largest cities and ports. At one point in the war, Canada did place a freeze on canned good purchasing. And this was to encourage housewives to buy and use the fresh produce in season. So that's another interesting, different approach. Now, Canada imported 100% of their dried fruits from the United States. Since this was one of the things Americans were rationing and shipping out with the military, Canada knew it would be even harder to get dried fruit. But they didn't ever ration dried fruit like the U.S. did. They just went without. Another aspect of the Canadian-United States relationship during the war was the agricultural cooperation. Canada and the United States joined efforts to develop domestic crops to compensate for overseas sources of fats and oils lost through Japanese conquest of the tropical islands in the South Pacific. And I talked quite a bit about that in the episode about... Um, fats in wartime. So when it comes to this agricultural cooperation, in January of 1943, so this is before the bulk of American rationing has started, 
Um, there was a three-day conference between the agricultural heads of the U.S. and Canada. They talked about Canada taking on a bigger role in supplying food to the U.K., aligning the rationing of similar food products in both countries, and expanding livestock numbers in the U.S. with an expansion of feed crops in Canada to help establish reserve supplies for any future needed exchanges between the two countries. So they were really looking ahead um, and preparing for being able to help each other out. Canada hoped to be able to assist the American food position in meat and dairy products by either delivering more directly to allies or by supplementing American supplies. The Canadian Minister of Agriculture did warn them, however, that these extra supplies would have to come through increased production and not from rationing the Canadian people in order to make greater supplies available to Britain. So he was just making it clear that you know, we can make these bigger plans, but we're not going to do it out of, you know, rationing the people. It's going to come out of increased production. Now, as Americans moved closer toward meat rationing, Canadians kept a close watch on that too. They were working hard to increase their head of cattle in order to produce enough meat for themselves and for the British. And the Canadians really took helping the British out very seriously. And to talk more about that, I interviewed my friend and fellow wartime ration geek, Kelsey. So with me today is Kelsey Loney, teacher, amateur writer, proud dog owner, and 1940s enthusiast. She was raised on a cattle ranch in Saskatchewan, Canada, and grew up riding horses, learning about the land, and listening to the stories of her grandparents, who grew up during the 30s and 40s. This upbringing sparked a lifelong interest in World War II history and life on the home front in Canada. She works at preserving the stories of veterans and is currently writing her first novel about the RCAF, which is the Royal Canadian Air Force. And she joins me today to chat about Canadian rationing and the wartime relationship between the United States and Canada. So welcome, Kelsey. Thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> I am too. It's so, it's really exciting to... Uh, bring in some other countries that uh, the United States had a relationship with because um, we definitely were not standing alone in the war effort. Now, uh, Canada and the United Kingdom were very much linked in World War II. So could you tell us more about these two countries' relationship and why it was so important during the war? Mm-hmm. Well, Britain was Canada's motherland. We were still tied under the king's rule. So Canadian food exports were an essential lifeline for Britain. For example, Canadian exports accounted for 57% of Britain wheat and flour consumption by the end of the war. For this reason, food really was a weapon of war. Canadian housewives knew that rationing their food intake would directly impact Britain's performance in the war. So there wasn't much grumbling about it. Yeah, I found that to be the case too. Um, in one Canadian newspaper from December, 1941, uh, they talked about how Canadians gladly gave up bacon and ham in order to send it to the UK. It says that the bacon board encouraged citizens to satisfy their cravings with tenderloin, spare ribs, head cheese, sausage, and hocks, so that still more of the fresh pork, bacon, and hams could be sent to Britain. Um, at that time, the rationing was self-imposed. And because of that, 
united effort during july august and september they were able to send millions of pounds of hams and bacon to britain the article says quote canadians had given a heartening response to the board's appeal for a 50 percent cut in the volume formerly consumed what the people have done in reducing pork consumption they are ready to do in other directions. Their readiness to respond to such appeals is actually ahead of the government's readiness to ask for sacrifices. The people only need to be assured that a self-denial is essential to an effective war effort. They will do the rest, close quote. I just, I just think that's so cool. Canadians were like, just give it to us. We'll, <laughs> we, will, <laughs> we will make the sacrifices to help Britain out. Yeah, definitely. And I think we'll talk about this later a little bit more, but we had so many um, sons and brothers and fathers sent over there right away that um, there was just no complaining. They wanted to really help out yeah. the people over there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of families still back over in the motherland too. Um, I came across a pamphlet published by the Food Conservation Committee of the Government of Canada from 1944 called Food is Everybody's Business. It demonstrated to Canadians that more food was being produced in their country than ever before. The objective was to ensure the fulfillment of Canada's food commitments, both at home and abroad. Quote, consumers must be persuaded to make their dietary adjustments within the limits of present supply. Most Canadians will be willing to do this without grumbling if they are told how it can be done. The importance of Canadian food supplies, especially wheat, in the establishment of peace, and the fact that every victory by our armies adds new claimants cannot be told too often. Um, The pamphlet has maps which show Canadians where their food is going beyond civilian use. Uh, It says that at least half of the food we produced was distributed to the United Kingdom, Red Cross parcels for prisoners of war, armed forces canteens in overseas areas, convoy ships, personnel in advanced defense posts, and other United Nations, which, quote, have a claim on the food Canada can spare. These, our allies, deserve the most we can give them and are now getting it. That would have included the USA. Um, The link to a PDF of this pamphlet will be included on the blog for you to look at. As a country ruled by England, our ties were strong and our support was important. We had the means, freedom, and space to produce what our English compatriots needed, and we were up to the task. I think that's really awesome. And I... I came across this article interviewing people in Windsor, Ontario about giving up bacon. And the headline says, sure, they will give up breakfast bacon. Most Windsorites express willingness to have bacon ration if it would help Britain. Some of their responses are kind of funny, but many are serious. So this guy named Fred, he was a radio room operator in the police building. He says, when I was in England with the number one company of the First Division Signal Corps, I found that bacon constituted one of the main foods of the English. You'd find it on any menu three times a day. I think that it would mean far more to the Britisher to go without bacon than it would to a Canadian. If it means cutting down on consumption here to better feed the British, by all means, let us do it and do it quickly. Two eggs and two rashers of bacon in the old country cost about one shilling three pence or the equivalent of 32 cents. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's and then funny. Constable Arthur Irwin on the beat, 
He says, there's lots of bacon running around the farms, or could be if the farmer could get more for the hogs. Pay the farmer more and watch the market be flooded. That's what I think about the bacon situation. As for cutting it out of my meals, well, I don't eat enough of it for it to make any difference. And actually, that's kind of the sentiment of quite a few of these people they interviewed. They're like, I don't really eat it very much, so sure give it to the british that's great <laughs> that's really funny like i everybody i know loves bacon yeah <laughs> i know i love bacon but maybe it just wasn't like a part of their you know the everyday diet in the 40s in canada mm -hmm. but i really like what miss ruby wilson says who's a school supervisor she says the bacon i eat wouldn't help britain much we have to watch our figures you know <laughs> oh my <laughs> And then yeah. last, Arthur J. Reum, mayor, says, I think it would be an excellent idea to do without some things. If food rationing in Canada becomes necessary in order to supply the needs of the people in Britain, I would certainly support it. If the people of Britain are being rationed, there's no reason why we shouldn't. Uh -huh. What a good example from the mayor. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> so um, when rationing did start for Canada, uh, a major thing... I started this podcast with was explaining the timeline of American food rationing um, just because it's, it's good to get, you know, an overview of like what it was like through the war years, you know, so what was rationed when, and I imagine it was the same for Canada, but it was different, wasn't it? Because they had declared war earlier along with, with the UK. Yes, exactly. Uh, there are a few similarities with American rationing. Like you'll notice sugar was rationed the longest. Um, overall, here's an example of the timeline. So sugar, tea, and coffee were rationed uh, from August 1942 until 1947. Meat was rationed starting May 27th, 1943 to March 1st, 1944. So not too long, but then it started being rationed again in September 45. Butter, December 1942 until 1947. Beer, spirits, and wine after July 1942 until 1947. And um, weekly amounts, these did fluctuate during the war, but um, a basic example would be sugar at eight ounces tea at two ounces, butter at eight ounces, coffee at eight ounces, or at restaurants, uh, tea and coffee was restricted to one cup per person. Meat was at 24 to 32 ounces, and the beer, spirits, and wine, that varied between the provinces. I noticed there were some similarities, but like some of them, yeah, definitely are different from the U.S., like butter being rationed so long. Um, mm. that's pretty amazing. And I, I know that there were like special ration coupons for like alcohol, alcoholic drinks. And so, um, I, I haven't studied that part yet, but I imagine it's similar to the Canadian rationing for that as well. So one article in a Min Minnesota newspaper drew a really interesting detailed comparison between Canadian and American rationing. It stated, food rationing in Canada is similar to that in the United States. Half a pound of sugar per person is allowed each week. Meat rations vary according to cuts. Each person gets two coupons a week. Half a pound of butter is allowed per person per week. 
Each person over 12 years old may get two ounces of tea or eight ounces of coffee a week. American rationing allows each person approximately similar amounts. Tea never has been and coffee is now not now rationed in the United States. Canadian cafes are not allowed to serve more than a third of an ounce of butter at a meal. They may serve only one cup of coffee and sugar bowls may not be put on the tables. You must ask the waiter for sugar lumps. Canned goods have not been rationed by the Canadian government. Those stores generally limit customers to one or two cans of a kind. So canned pineapple, marmalade, and honey have been hard to get for months. In remote areas such as Yukon Territory and Northwest Territories, there is no formal rationing, but residents are expected to limit their consumption of scarce foods. And I just found this really interesting because most of the time with rationing, um, these aspects of rationing haven't been studied a lot. So we kind of have to draw our own conclusions and comparisons. But I really love that I found this article where he is doing the comparing for us um, from that time. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it gave us a really good idea. So um, I'd like to talk about how the ration books worked. I read that the Canadians used a ration book system patterned after the British version like Americans. And I could see that in the food amounts that you told us about. Um, it sounds very similar to British portions. And the British rationing system it was really setting a standard for how to ration people during wartime. And so the Americans patterned their program after that, and so did the Canadians. So I know in Canada, they used six ration books in the course of the war. They were valid for several months at a time and had color-coded perforated stamps, which the store clerk or delivery boy was supposed to remove. Um, I imagine though that there's a lot more to the ration books than just that. So could you explain a little more about it? Yeah, for sure. Um, before rationing began, the government was simply making ration suggestions. So by January 1942, sugar was at a suggestion of 12 ounces per week. And by May 1942, it was down to eight ounces. Tea was at half rations and coffee at quarter rations. Eventually, coupons would be distributed um, around August 1942, and then Ration Book 1 was issued at the very beginning of 1943. The serial number on the front of Ration Book 1 became the individual's identification number for the duration of the war. Then we had Ration Book 2 issued in March of 1943 with expiration dates on the back of each stamp. It also contained an application for extra canning sugar. Um, Ration Book 3 was issued in August of 1943. So not, not too much time uh, from March yeah. to August until the next book came out. They were really kind of pumping them out. Sugar became more stringent at this time, and rationing now included maple syrup, table syrups, molasses, canned fruits and fruit butter, jams, jellies, marmalade and honey. Evaporated milk was for priority use only due to the need for sugar in the production of shells and bombs and molasses for synthetic rubber. Not much different with Ration Book 4. It came out in April 1944 and then Ration Book 5 came out in October 1944 
And this was the longest of any issue. It actually covered a period of 50 weeks. So apparently they knew what they were doing by that point and <laughs> said no more ration books for a while. Ration book six was issued in September of 1946. So actually after the war wow. and rationing in Canada didn't end until 1947. And a little note about meat. Meat was its own rationed item. And although they did have stamps in their ration books, we also had little blue tokens of pressed cardboard. Um, and I think those were used as um, change. Meat was rationed from May of 1943 to February of 1944, as we've mentioned earlier, and back to being rationed in September of 1945 to help feed starving Europe. So um, we had to tighten wow. our belts again to help those over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the Americans experienced similar, but they definitely were back to kind of normal, except for sugar until 47. So um, yeah, really interesting. I did want to talk about the molasses because mm -hmm. when we were talking earlier, um, uh, when we we're preparing for the podcast, you'd mentioned about how one place in Canada really loved their molasses. Yeah, they said that in the Maritimes, I found this little article and it was saying how um, the residents in Prince Edward Island were going to the store with their jugs, just hoping that someone would fill their jug with molasses this week. Um, apparently they just loved it on bread. It was just <laughs> a real, a real heartache. Yeah. Hardship for sure. Uh, and then I just, I find it so interesting that they rationed maple syrup. I mean, I know it's kind of the stereotyped um, <laughs> picture of Canada with all yeah. the maple syrup things. And, but wow, I think that would be so hard. I'm, was that like a pretty important sweetener for Canadians? I have noticed it, um, not as important as corn syrup and other things that I've seen in ration books, Canadian ration, um, recipe books, but they definitely did use their maple syrup. I know I would have a hard time going without maple syrup. <laughs> Maybe not much molasses so much, but I really love pure maple syrup. It's so delicious. Yes. Um, I also wanted to talk about the little tokens really quick. Uh, I know we, we still have more research to do about what those tokens, like how they functioned in the rationing system. But mm -hmm. what's really cool about these is, you know, while our, uh, in the United States, our tokens were red and blue and they were just solid little pressed cardboard discs but the canadian ones don't they have a hole in the middle yeah they do they have a little uh, hole cut out in the middle they're like super cute <laughs> <laughs> and this says can does it say canada on them and mm -hmm. uh, is there like a maple leaf on there as well that's i remember mm, it says on it canada meat ration and two little maple leaves. Yay. I was and right. <laughs> it says meat in French. Oh yes. That's another very interesting thing to point out about the ration books is that all the ration books are in English and in French. Mm -hmm. And, and that's still something that Canada does today. Like everything is English and French, which I think is pretty cool. Yes. English and French. <laughs> so in preparing for this episode, 
you told me about your grandmother's experience with ration books. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. Um, so especially in Western Canada, which is where I'm from, it's quite sparsely populated. <laughs> Canada has a much smaller population than the U.S., and none of our cities can really compare with the large cities of the states. Where I am from, there is open space like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Cattle still roam large pastures. We have prairie grass for miles. And the farther north you go, the fewer people you run into. This would have only been more true in the 1940s. Therefore, people in Western Canada had large plots of land where they could grow gardens, wheat, cattle, chickens, and pigs. Food was sourced on the land. Berries picked, meat slaughtered, milk, cheese, and butter made, eggs gathered. Therefore, to many, sugar, tea, and coffee were what was missed most with rationing and uh, the rest of the ration stamps weren't really needed in a lot of cases for these rural families. Those in more densely populated areas, such as Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, or other major cities, they may have felt the tightening of rations much more significantly. And my grandma, she always says how thankful she is that she was able to live on a farm during the time of rationing. With a large family to feed, they always had enough. And she had some cousins who lived in town and they, she always felt so sorry for them. Uh, they were, you know, using all their ration stamps and counting and um, going without. And so she admits that they definitely gifted their unused ration stamps to family in town. And I, I always said, grandma, that was illegal. <laughs> but I recently read that that was a fairly common practice in Canada. On canadashistory.ca, it mentions that against express wishes, people bartered, sold, raffled, and made gifts of their ration coupons. It says that a man in Toronto was even fined $100 because he managed to get a hold of a ration card for his dog. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and $100 would have been quite a bit back then. That is a lot, but I kind of feel like he deserved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, maybe that dog uh, ate a lot. <laughs> maybe. maybe the man ate a lot. <laughs> I know that... I mean, there's, it's one thing in to read in, um, like the government propaganda and newspapers telling how rationing is supposed to function, <laughs> but how it, it functions in actual practice, people got creative and made it more flexible <laughs> and, um, <laughs> like pooling ration coupons to get something to share as a family or several families, I know that happened in the United States as well, but I don't know. I have yet to come across situations where they bartered or sold. So I, maybe they did. I, I'm going to look now. <laughs> I'm sure it happened, not just in Canada, but I just, I like though, that we know that that happened mm -hmm. because sure. I just, it's just, their, it was their reality and that's, they were doing the best that they could. And I, it, I think it's a testament to how generous people in Canada were because mm -hmm. like, well, I don't need it. So 
Hey, I'll would, give this away or I'll put it in this raffle. Someone else can have it that needs it more than me. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you just have so much and you see these people struggling, like you would just feel silly to hold on to them. <laughs> yeah. But sorry, not for the dogs. Okay, guys. I know no, <laughs> dogs no. are precious and we love them, but, um, <laughs> no yeah, that might be going up. Yeah. Might be going a bit too far. <laughs> Next, I wanted to talk about uh, something I find really interesting, and that is Canada's food for fitness campaign. Slogans like Canada needs you and Canada needs you strong. Um, these were kind of how they advertised their food for fitness. So it's similar to American like health and nutrition during the war, but it is a little bit different. Um, what I found is the, the Canadian food guide um, it was introduced in July of 1942 and their slogan, their biggest slogan was eat right, feel right. Canada needs you strong. There were five food groups, milk and cheese for adults. It was one half pint and for children, more than one pint fruits, vegetables, in addition to potatoes, cereals and bread, meat, fish, and eggs, etc. plus any other foods you wish. Later, they created six food groups instead of the five with eggs being in its own group. I find this really interesting because in America, butter and margarine had its own food group, <laughs> which oh, I think wow. is so funny. Yes. <laughs> but um, maybe it just went without saying that you would have fat in your diet so that the Canadians mm. didn't bother to mention that. Like, you know, but um, I was wondering if you could tell uh, us more of the important points about the Canadian Food Guide. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we both researched into the Food for Fitness campaign and we kept mm -hmm. finding this difference between, okay, this one has five food groups, this one has six yeah. food groups. And um, I think there were um, even some cookbooks that were publishing, you know, different food for fitness campaign like their version and then but Canada's first food guide which would be the official food rules was introduced to the public in July 1942 um, this guide acknowledged wartime food rationing while endeavoring to prevent nutritional deficiencies and to improve the health of Canadians it's essentially the six food groups that we know of today, as you mentioned, milk, fruit, vegetables, cereals and breads, meat, fish, etc., and eggs. In modern times, this um, food guide is, it still exists in partnership with um, the Canadian government and Health Canada. They distribute and teach the Canadian food guide as even part of the curriculum in school. And just like during the war, the food guide is basic education designed to help people follow a healthy diet, guide their food selection, portion sizes, and promote the nutritional health of Canadians. It's fun to find the original food guide because growing up, my mom always had our food guide tacked to the fridge for reference. And if they came out with a updated food guide, she would replace it. She was, she was sure that we were going to follow this Canadian food guide. And it honestly hasn't changed too much since it was first introduced in World War II. However, we no longer need to eat six pieces of bread a day. And they're not suggesting 
liver and kidney once a week anymore. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Uh, I think that was a bit of propaganda. <laughs> no, yeah, it sounds familiar. <laughs> mm-hmm. So speaking of propaganda, um, Canada dealt with food propaganda just as much as Americans did, though some of the topics were a little different, like some of the focuses of the food propaganda. Of course, the root of the propaganda was patriotism. Uh, the government encouraged Canadians to ration when there wasn't a great way of monitoring it. And it was a while before they made rationing official. In the meantime, the government encouraged the women of Canada to participate in rationing and eat the right foods using persuasive or gilding tactics appealing to them about helping the boys on the front. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about the different tactics or slogans they use and if there were any particular things Canadian women were encouraged to do? Mm-hmm. Yes, the boys were very important. We didn't really have a mascot. Uncle Sam wasn't telling us to do anything, and um, but everybody knew somebody who was fighting in the war and it was our job to help our boys. They were ours. They belonged to everyone. Although we did have rationing rules, Canada is a very large country. So it's impossible, as we mentioned, to police everything happening on the black market. So that's where propaganda comes in. The government is um, coming in at this point with guilting the women, guilting the women in many different ways. Um, everything was for the boys. Posters showed our boys waiting for your food. A loyal woman helps our boys. Shopping on a budget helps our boys. Um, everybody wanted these boys home soon at all costs. Many people were happy to give things up for the sake of the war. However, um, the government did their part to encourage anyone who was thought to grumble Um, Some cute slogans I came across were, your apron is your uniform, and your wooden spoon is your weapon, or use your cook stove to cook Hitler's goose. (laughs) And this is a fun one. As a patriotic gesture, we feel that icing on cakes should be out this year. (laughs) And I love how they attempted to make certain sacrifices seem trendy, like, oh, that's (laughs) out this year. Who puts icing on cakes? And no one does that anymore. Gee. Yeah. <laughs> Newspapers, recipe books, and propaganda even appointed specific foods as patriotic, which of course were the Canadian foods that weren't needed overseas or rationed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very convenient. <laughs> Soybeans were touted as a grand replacement for salted peanuts. And apples. Yeah. Apples were a great fruit to eat in Canada. They were really abundant in British Columbia and Ontario. Most of Canada is quite cold in the winter (laughs) and not suitable for growing many of the more exotic fruits that we enjoy, like oranges and bananas. Therefore, the government encouraged Canadians to eat the fruit that they could produce locally, which was more available to the public. There were some really cute ads in the Claims magazine specifically. Um, And that's a Canadian current affairs magazine that's been in print since 1905. They have a great online archive. One ad says, serve apples daily and you serve your country too. 
I found many of these ads and articles encouraging housewives to cook with Canadian apples in breakfasts, supper recipes, and desserts. I really love that. Um, the United States had similar slogans, but they were more aimed in like in general, like at eating fresh local produce because it wasn't rationed and it, it couldn't be shipped very far. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of the victory garden stuff too, like grow your own so that it can relieve the burden of, uh, of the farmers so that they can focus on those bigger crops that the military needs. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any other food propaganda items in Canada during the war that stood out to you? Yeah, a really interesting one was lobster. And before researching for this podcast, I didn't really think about lobster all that much I'm in a landlocked province and but since lobster was an unrationed food it was published widely in magazines and advertisements especially in its canned form the canadian home journal published an article called it's patriotic and pleasant to eat canadian lobster in July 1940, and it included recipes for lobster cocktail, lobster a la king, and lobster sandwiches. Mm. <laughs> One article in Maclean's magazine from the September 1st, 1941 issue uh, was called Lobster Isn't a Luxury. It says everybody in the swim is serving a lobster these days. It's the smart and patriotic thing to do. Smart because its rosy color and distinctive delicate flavor gives an air to your table. Patriotic because canned lobster is a Canadian product and we have a whole lot of it. The money we spend for this good food benefits a basic Canadian industry and helps along our war effort. I thought that that was especially cute how they mentioned that lobster is fun to cook with and it's just it's got this pretty rosy color so why wouldn't you want to cook with something pink and pretty (laughs) i think that's really interesting and um i think it's funny that they're pointing out how pretty lobster was and to cook with it and it's Mm -hmm. not a luxury like before that it seems i think lobster was considered a luxury like it wasn't something that you just ate every day Um, especially where you live um, in the middle of Canada. It's not like lobsters were just over there in the lake or something like that. They definitely had to be shipped there. (laughs) Um, And so they kind of had to change Canadians thinking about lobster. Like, why was that the case though? Like, why were they going from, you know, lobster is this nice fancy food you have on special occasions to all of a sudden, oh, just kidding. It's patriotic Mm -hmm. to eat lobster. Why, why was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, people in Western Canada and these landlocked provinces, I wouldn't say that seafood is a palate that um, they would necessarily think of enjoying. And I kind of looked earlier and earlier before the war, there really wasn't a lot of articles about fish and lobster and um, eating with fish and lobster. (laughs) But then suddenly, because there was just so much of it, the fishermen were going out, they had these fresh lobster, um, it couldn't be exported fresh, and I guess they weren't really 
canning it and exporting it either. And so they said, okay, we've got a bunch of lobster and a bunch of fish that Canadians need to eat. So how are we going to make this seem tasty? And then there is just many, many articles after the, the war started in, especially in Maclean's, they just often produced articles that, and ads, really colorful ads with little recipes on the ads saying, try this, it's amazing, Canadian lobster, it's patriotic. Uh, I actually don't know of anybody personally that ate canned lobster during the war, <laughs> but apparently they were really pushing it. And it makes sense though, because like, especially at the beginning of the war, when U-boats were a huge threat. So getting like, if they, their market was in England, like I, I was reading that the biggest part of their market was selling lobster to England. And, mm -hmm. but because of the U-boats, um, that just was not the case anymore. Everywhere fishermen were in danger. Like no matter what country you lived in, if there were U-boats in the water, your job was really risky. So it makes sense that all of a sudden they have all this lobster on their hands that they can't send to England. So now what are they going to do with it? Well, Canadians need to eat it. <laughs> um, I also found quite a few newspaper articles and ads about how patriotic it was for Canadians to eat lobster. However, all was not friendly on the home front between the U.S. and Canada when it came to lobster. Oh, no. Yes. Yeah, so the fisher, <laughs> it's it, it centered around the fishermen in the state of Maine. They share a border with Canada. And I found this article entitled, Ban on Canadian canned lobster sale in Maine. It declared that the Sea and Shore Fisheries Commissioner Arthur Greenleaf had been receiving complaints from Maine fishermen that huge amounts of Canadian lobster were flooding the market in Maine in violation of regulations. So Commissioner Greenleaf moved to suspend the sale of canned Canadian lobsters in Maine. It says... Stores had been given five days to dispose of their stock of Canadian lobster in a move Greenleaf says was directed at lightning competition against the products of our own fishermen. Uh, a large percentage of Canadian meat was canned from lobsters smaller than the minimum main legal size. The commissioner promised rigid enforcement of a law under which sellers of illegal lobster meat may be fined as much as $10 a pound. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of humorous to think about it now, but you know, it was a serious livelihood for fishermen in Maine. And it's just interesting to see how both of our countries shared the lobster market up there. And it also hints at how much the lobster market had shrunk for the Canadian fishermen. So they were taking that risk of, you know, sending their lobster yeah. into the markets in the U S um, and that didn't make the, the lobster men in Maine very happy. <laughs> um, so housewives buying lobster and other Canadian products that couldn't be shipped overseas was an important home front task for the Canadians. Yes, exactly. Actually, one of the recipes I made for today's episode is a lobster recipe. Ooh. You can look forward to that. <laughs> and it comes from an article called How About Lobster from July 15th, 1940 in a McLean's magazine. 
So remember, we had already been in the war for almost a year by then in 1940. And although we were not rationing yet, the article says that we were facing a different problem. Quote, it hasn't been necessary so far to put the family on rations to do without this or that or to substitute something good for something better. We would and gladly if the need arose, but right now we are facing an entirely different situation. We are asked to buy and use the surplus supplies of certain foods, thus preventing waste and assuring the producers and distributors a decent wage and a decent measure of prosperity. I think that's interesting because it shows that there was not the same availability to sell and ship our resources because of the war, and we were asked to eat more of certain foods, like lobster. <laughs> wow, that is very resourceful. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's um, really interesting about the lobster, and I, I'm really happy that we've both found so much information about it and um, hopefully things have healed over between the main lobster <laughs> and the Canadian lobster and since then. Um, now, one thing that I found really interesting, um, the, a difference between our countries, especially during the war, is that more ethnic regional foods um, are common in Canada as opposed to the American melting pot where there are a lot of international foods that were adopted into mainstream food culture so like looking in my wartime cookbooks there are some chinese recipes some italian recipes a lot of british and french and it was just like that's just what everyone was familiar with and i just find the difference in the these food traditions to be really fascinating mm-hmm Definitely. In many ways, Canadians have a much shorter history than the USA. Of course, First Nations people have been here living off the land for a really long time, but Canada's immigration spread much more slowly. Yes, our first settlements in Newfoundland and Quebec date back to the 1600s, but Western Canada was left mostly untouched until the railroad made its way from coast to coast, which wasn't until 1886. In 1896, our Prime Minister at the time, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, began to fulfill his vision to see Western Canada fill up. His government advertised throughout Europe, promising good farmland and great opportunities. Settlers began to pour in from Norway, Germany, Ukraine, Poland, and many other places. It was a harsh reality when they saw where they were to live. <laughs> it was just a flat stretch of prairie, nothing but grass. Slowly, these pioneers built a life for themselves, living off the land, farming, ranching, and putting up a little sod house. Many people would have been considered pioneers right into the 1930s based on their living conditions. Wow. Yeah. Uh, my grandparents were first-generation Canadians in the early 1900s. They spoke their original language, Norwegian and German, and were very much tied to their homeland. Now, you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with World War II rationing? <laughs> 
Well, when I've interviewed elders about what they and their families ate during World War II, most only spoke of traditional home country foods that their mothers made. There was not an American or Canadianized cuisine that was necessarily trendy in our part of Canada, and certainly minimal restaurants and cafes, and minimal money for it too. <laughs> you mentioned that in America, it's more of a melting pot of cuisine and culture. We are definitely getting to be like that now too, but not in the 1940s. I don't think my grandma ever even used a cookbook. <laughs> she just cooked the traditional Norwegian foods that she knew from her mother and from the home country. And that is what she has passed on to my mom and to me. The national dishes of the home country are proudly cooked and passed down to us today and were widely cooked in the 1940s in Canada. Uh, some examples. Uh, in the 1940s, the German side of my family ate things such as baking powder noodles, schnitzel, sugar kuga, dumplings, and of course, potatoes. The Norwegian side of my family was eating lefse, flatbread, romigrut, which is a Norwegian porridge made with sour cream, whole milk, whole wheat flour, butter, and salt, and klub, a potato dumpling stuffed with a cube of ham. <laughs> there were and still are large pockets of Ukrainians, too, who ate food such as pierogies, sauerkraut, and cabbage rolls. Um, these are dishes still proudly cooked and passed down to us today. I really like that. And I can see um, even from my husband's family, his uh, grandparents, right? actually, I think his great grandparents immigrated to Montana from Norway. And when we were there last for a family reunion, um, they were talking about the lefse bread and they actually had some in the freezer like a whole bunch mm. of it that grandma had made. <laughs> and I think those recipes were definitely still used in the family, um, but they also intermixed them with, you know, American cookbooks. And I, when I was doing searches for, you know, Canadian cookbooks, I didn't come across very many from the 1940s. That's not to say that they don't exist. Like there weren't that many, but that, they're just harder to find. I don't know. Was that the case with you as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The cookbooks that I have that are Canadian are often just compiled by a group of women published just locally. I even found one from my, my town where I live and oh, some ladies, wow. local ladies just put together this cookbook and it's quite professionally done, but um, yeah, they are they are recipes that these ladies would have just had and were cooking with and not really any ethnic foods or anything um, risky and exciting. <laughs> Mostly just meat and potatoes and this recipe never fails. <laughs> but not a lot of cookbooks that are nationally published. Yeah, I think that's so interesting comparing those two things. And I, I know there's definitely more research I would like to do in this area, like Canadian rationing, like the cookbooks they're using. And they just, they definitely did have recipes in magazines and newspapers, just like us in America mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the new or, you know, wartime trendy 
recipes. Like one of them that I found was for Canadian war cake. And <laughs> I just think looking at these recipes, like they, they did vary from one to another, but it pretty much resembled like the world war one war cake that the British had. Um, and they just, you know, called it Canadian war cake. So I don't know what yes. makes it Canadian specifically, <laughs> but, um, but that recipe was making its rounds again in world war two. Mm -hmm. And so it was, I I've noticed that, that they were recycling recipes from a previous war time. And we did that in America too. I just love seeing evidence of that though. Yeah, me too. Today's cookbook feature is Purity Cookbook. This is a very well-known Canadian cookbook. And Purity was a company that produced flour and their head office was in Toronto, Canada. And this issue of this cookbook I have is from 1945, but the original copyright is from 1932. And there have been subsequent issues since World War II. There, this is a very popular cookbook. In the introduction, it talks about just the changes that they've made in this cookbook as compared to earlier versions. But there is one little paragraph that mentions um, that this present edition has been largely rewritten and rearranged by Mrs. Kathleen M. Watson, a graduate in home economics of the University of Manitoba, and now a member of the teaching staff of that institution, and a housewife as well. In spite of numerous difficulties caused by food rationing and shortages, she has personally tested and carefully selected all the recipes. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, wow. I would like yeah. to meet her. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Mrs. Watson. Um, a lot of recipes. <laughs> it is. And, you know, a lot of them look familiar to me as, uh, you know, studying American rationing for so long. A lot of them are, you know, pretty basic standard recipes. Um, <clears throat> at the beginning, it also has some tips of how to be you know, how to use these recipes and how to um, use your time wisely. And then just, just some basic cooking things like there's a table of equivalents and an oven temperature chart, which is actually really nice because, you know, in some recipes from this time, we just, they don't give you a temperature. It just says moderate oven. And in yes. nowadays we're like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, but it has a whole chart and I can have pictures of this up on my blog because it's just like, it seems like obvious stuff, but like cooks or bakers today might actually not know some of these things. Um, and then one of my favorite parts of this cookbook is the health section. <laughs> like so many wartime cookbooks from that time, there was a section about health and it has this really pretty pictures of the food groups and then groups one through six. So by 1945, they're using the six food groups. And this cookbook includes, you know, it, it's a very comprehensive cookbook. You know, it has baked goods, candies, cereals, and cocktails, desserts, and then, you know, main dish things like fish, poultry, game, and meats, invalid dishes, which are so interesting, sandwiches, soups. It just has a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to cook some 
uh, iconic Canadian recipes. <laughs> so the first one I tried was apple oat pudding with honey scotch sauce. Now I wanted to do, because you talked about apple, like apples were a big propaganda thing for Canadians, like eat Canadian apples. I wanted mm -hmm. to try an apple recipe. So I don't know if this particular recipe is like distinctly Canadian, but it was really interesting and I've never seen anything quite like it. It calls, wow, for one cup of sugar. That's a lot. Ooh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so just just chuck a cup of ration sugar in there. No big yeah. deal. <laughs> it's like a weekly ration. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is a very different recipe. Yeah, like I said, a cup of sugar, a quarter cup shortening or butter, one egg yolk, a tablespoon of lemon juice, tablespoon orange juice, a teaspoon of cinnamon, teaspoon of nutmeg. And by this time, I mean, just what we know from last season, the last episode, we talked about spices. A teaspoon is quite a lot of a very <laughs> shortage, you know, of these spices. Um, half teaspoon cloves, salt, two cups hot milk, one cup purity rolled oats. So they also sold rolled oats of their own brand. Quarter cup raisins, quarter cup chopped peel, and three cups chopped apple and one, one egg white. And the chopped peel, I, we we had talked about like what this meant. <laughs> Does it mean apple peel or lemon peel? I, we don't know. Just generic peel. <laughs> Just whatever peels you have lying around, like potato peels, whatever. Oh. <laughs> Compost. Yeah. Just whatever you have. No. So I assumed it meant apple peel because you would peel the apples and cut those in separately. And I don't know. That's what I used. I just, <laughs> I peeled some apples and put that in, but I actually didn't have enough fresh apples. So I used, I had some uh, dried apples, which I think, you know, it could be accurate, you know, in the dead of winter, I'm sure Canadian women had preserved their precious Canadian apples, you know, whichever way, like dehydrating Definitely. or canning or whatever. So um, in this recipe, you cream together the sugar and shortening and you beat in, you beat the egg yolk and mix that in. Then you add all the spices and salt and you mix it well. Then you pour the hot milk over the oats and then you stir it for one to two minutes. And the oats are supposed to, you know, soak in that liquid. Um, then you add to the batter, you add the raisins the mysterious peel and then apple and blend thoroughly. And then, then this part didn't really make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I know they do this a lot in wartime recipes. You beat the egg white until it's stiff and then you fold it into the batter. Well, my problem was, was that it wasn't a batter. It was very liquidy, like a soup. And I'm like, is it supposed to be this way? Weird. <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. Um, but I put it, it says, turn it into a grease baking dish and bake it in a moderate oven, which is 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And you bake it for 40 to 45 minutes. Um, it did not turn into the dish. It poured like a soup into the dish. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> um, but it did bake up into, it was kind of like an apple oatmeal type mm. consistency, which but much sweeter because of all that sugar. Then you're supposed to serve it hot with a sauce. And 
the honey scotch sauce really caught my eye, but they have other ones like coffee sauce, fruit juice sauce made with orange and lemon juices, honey foamy sauce, spiced sauce, or any other sweet sauce you have on hand. (laughs) But the honey scotch sauce, I was like, that sounds very interesting. So I made that one and it essentially is butterscotch sauce. So normally you use brown sugar for a butterscotch, but this uses honey. So it's called honey scotch sauce. (laughs) And, um, and then part of the ingredients are marshmallows, which also caught my eye. Yeah. So um, I made this honey scotch sauce. I won't go over it because it's pretty basic, but I'll have this on my blog for sure. And it was very delicious, actually. It was buttery and sweet, and it was perfect on the apple oat pudding. Nice. Yeah. Oh, and I did want to mention that if you use uh, gluten-free oats, that this um, wartime recipe is gluten-free. Wow. Yeah, I like to always point that out because um, there's a lot of food issues we have today that weren't as common back then. So um, sometimes cooking wartime recipes can be frustrating because there's always like a lot of grains involved. So if it's gluten-free, I just like to make, let people know so they can give it a try. And that's Um, interesting coming from a purity flour cookbook too. Yeah. Like grain was a big, a big thing for them. But in this case, it was just, just the oats and there's no Mm -hmm. flour in it. So that's really great. So the next recipe I tried is for sure a Canadian staple at holiday times. And that's butter tarts. Is that right? Definitely. We love our butter tarts. (laughs) They are very delicious. Um, But I didn't want to make just regular butter tarts. (laughs) Uh, There's a recipe in here for maple syrup butter tarts. And I was like, that is the one. (laughs) What is more Canadian than butter tarts? And maple ones. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. So maple syrup butter tarts that has two eggs, a cup of brown sugar, quarter teaspoon salt, two teaspoons vinegar, half cup maple syrup, six tablespoons melted butter, and then two-thirds cup chopped nut meats. Now, I know traditionally in butter tarts, you put raisins, Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason in this one, it calls for chopped nuts. I used pecans um, because Mm, that's what I had on hand, and I'm a big fan of pecans. Um, Or as in Canada, we say pecans. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I'm not sure if everyone in Indiana where I'm from says pecan. That's just what I say. But I know down South, I think they say it differently there too. (laughs) Just depends on where you live. Um, So for this recipe, you beat the eggs only until the yolks and whites are well blended. Then you beat in the sugar and salt and add the vinegar and maple syrup. Um, You mix that well. And then you add your melted butter and the nut meats. It's really simple. It's a very simple recipe. Mm-hmm. Then you line patty tins with pastry. So I just used a muffin tin, just a regular standard size. Uh, and you fill them only half to two thirds full. And this is very important because they like to bubble up and you definitely mm-hmm. don't want like scorched sugary filling that you have to scrub off your muffin pans. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you bake in a hot oven. So in this case, 400, 
450 degrees Fahrenheit for the first 10 minutes, then you reduce the temperature to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you bake this for 20 to 25 minutes until the filling is firm. Um, these were absolutely delicious. Um, I had, I think I ate a couple every day <laughs> and I hid them from my family. <laughs> no, I did share them some, some of them. <laughs> and, um, I have to say that these taste very similar to pecan pies. Um, mm. that filling is very, in fact, I think it's a lot of like the, I don't think it has vinegar in pecan pie recipes, even from the 1940s, but so that might be the little bit of the difference, but it was, I love pecan pies. And so this was heaven for me. <laughs> I would gladly make these again, but with all that sugar and the, you know, maple syrup was rationed and the brown sugar I'm sure had rationing as well. So, um, this was definitely for a special occasion. Mm -hmm. I think as butter tarts still are, we don't just, well, certainly my family doesn't eat them on the daily. It's, no, <laughs> served at Christmas time and yeah. Thanksgiving and things like that. So yeah, like we preserve like pumpkin pie, like we reserve that for yeah for holiday times. Just it's got that nostalgic feel and taste. You know, you just mm -hmm. wait. You just wait anxiously for that time when Definitely. you can have them again. <laughs> um, okay, so those were the two recipes I tried. I will have these on my blog and a couple of pictures from this cookbook. Now, um, Kelsey, you made some different recipes. One of them you've mentioned was lobster and you, where did you get your recipe from? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I became super intrigued by lobster propaganda when I was <laughs> researching for this podcast. I don't know why, but I just went down a tangent of lobster in the 1940s. So sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a Canadian war food item that I'd never thought about before. So uh, since it wasn't rationed and there were so many articles and ads to pick from, then I just had to make something. And at first I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to cook a lobster, Ooh. put it in the pot from live, <laughs> but I think that freaked me out a little too much. So <laughs> for, for the I, poor, poor landlocked us, <laughs> yeah, I, was <laughs> squeamish. <laughs> I thought it would be looking at me before it went into the pot. I just, I couldn't. So instead I went on a hunt for canned lobster. Um, was it easy you know, to find? It was not. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought, you know, it's a little more specific to my region too. In the forties, they were probably more cooking with the canned lobster anyway. Mm -hmm. So I went on this hunt and I checked many, many stores <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> and I went to all the canned sections and there was always, there was everything, tuna, salmon, Oh, oysters, but never the lobster. And then I finally found it in the frozen section. What? It was canned lobster frozen. And it said, keep frozen until you use it. And I wow. thought, what is the point of canning it if it's cooked already and it still needs to be frozen? I don't know. I never figured that out. But <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so on to the recipe. I chose to make lobster puff. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what this was going to be, but I followed the recipe very religiously. Um, you take two and a half tablespoons of butter, five tablespoons of flour, and a cup full of milk. 
So you melt the butter in the double boiler and you add in the flour and the milk and you stir it until it's thick. Then you remove it from the heat and you add three quarter teaspoon of salt, some pepper, a tablespoon of chopped parsley, three cupfuls of mashed potatoes, hmm. and then mix that all up and add two cupfuls of canned flaked lobster, one egg, mix it all together. I actually just used my hands, mixed it all up. And then it asks you to drop them by heaping spoonfuls onto a greased baking sheet, brush the tops with melted butter and bake in a hot oven. I chose 400 degrees for 20 minutes or until browned. It suggests serving them with piping hot green beans, buttered beans, or asparagus tips. Hmm. <laughs> so, how they taste? I, I followed the recipe and I served them to my husband and we looked at them and they kind of looked like almost like a biscuit, kind of biscuit-like. Hmm. And what had happened, because there was mashed potatoes in it, it got this crispy outside, but then inside it was still just like a mashed potato. It almost kind of tasted like a twice baked potato filling. Yeah, I can and see that. It crisped up nicely on the outside and was soft on the inside. But unfortunately, <laughs> uh -oh. it was terrible tasting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And uh, we really tried our best. It tasted so fishy. And I, I really enjoy seafood. But this, I don't know, it tasted way too fishy for us. We tried our best. And bless my husband's heart, he said, you know, this really did turn out exactly like it was supposed to. Like you did a great job, but it doesn't taste good. <laughs> and so we had to throw them in the garbage. Oh no. <laughs> I wasted all that food. I felt so bad, but we couldn't eat it. But you know, my takeaway from this recipe, um, you know, with one can of flaked lobster, it served at least six people. It is a great meat stretcher recipe wow. from World War II. Like that would have been really filling for a family. And if they're trying to cook with lobster, it's a great way to kind of incorporate it. And so I think the recipe was a really quintessential meat stretcher recipe from the 40s. Just not really great tasting for us. <laughs> but if you love lobster, maybe you would love it. Yeah. And if you're used to the canned lobster taste, you know, I'm mm -hmm. sure it would be very good. Like I grew up eating tuna fish. My mom served that quite a bit, but for some reason I didn't, I haven't served my own children that very much. And so now they're like gross tuna fish. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's yeah. just tuna fish. It's fish in a can. It's taste the way it's supposed to taste like, and for them they're like gross. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, I think something like if it's was available and it was inexpensive and a patriotic, like mm. you would just eat it. Right. Um, yeah. and it would be, yeah, it sounds like a really great meat stretcher recipe. So maybe you could try it again, but don't use lobster, yeah. <laughs> like use ground beef or pork or something. I bet it I would, would be like still to good. I would like to try it again, even without any meat at all in it. I think oh, it would yeah. make a great kind of like a, a side dish. side dish. Yeah. Yeah. Yum. It does mm. sound good. Mm-hmm. So you tried another recipe. I did. Where did you get I, this one from? So my next recipe includes a Canadian classic, maple syrup, as Yay. we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So maple syrup just represents everything Canadian. I mean, our flag has a maple leaf on it. (laughs) So in World War II, Canadian women were told to substitute sugar with other sweeteners. And although maple syrup was rationed, um, it was one of the suggestions, even in this cookbook, to use as a as a sweetener instead of sugar. So, of course, I wanted to find something unique involving maple syrup, and I found the perfect recipe in my Canadian wartime cookbook called How to Eat Well Though Rationed, Wartime Canning and Cookbook from 1943. This cookbook is definitely for my wartime fangirl heart. The foreword says, Canadian men are on the march everywhere. So are Canadian women. Just as our soldiers, sailors, and airmen are changing their habits overnight, so are our homemakers adapting themselves to changes in the kitchen. Canadian housewives are contributing just as much in their own way to winning the war as the men who have gone into uniform. It goes on encouraging women to see victory in Europe achieved. Um, It includes such cute sections called keeping your family fit in wartime, a week's menus for a family of four on rations, the wartime lunchbox, meat stretching dishes, colorful salads of vitamins and victory, tempting desserts despite rationing, and many more. This recipe was especially fun because it's called maple syrup gingerbread. And I know, Sarah, you and I were curious as to how this gingerbread mm-hmm. would taste because any gingerbread recipe we'd ever seen always includes molasses. But this one actually substitutes all the molasses for maple syrup. So I thought, well, that will be very interesting and yeah. unique. <laughs> so here's how I made it. I creamed half a cup of shortening until it was a whipped cream consistency. And I added one cup of maple syrup slowly, blending it in well. I added a beaten egg. Then I sifted two cups of flour, a quarter teaspoon salt, quarter teaspoon soda, a teaspoon of ginger, and added that to the first mixture, alternately with half a cup of sour milk. I added half a lemon, with the rind and the juice. It poured into a well-greased eight by 12 shallow pan and baked at 350 degrees for 50 minutes. When removed, I let it sit before removing it from the pan. Now, I'm always nervous with wartime recipes when they don't exactly give you, um, this again, set a moderate oven. Um, So Mm -hmm. I chose 350 degrees. Um, I thought 50 minutes is a really long time for a cake. So I decided, you know, I'll check it after 20. And it was done. I stuck a toothpick in it and it was done. So maybe they they meant 325 moderate. Who knows? (laughs) Exactly. So that was my disclaimer to check this cake early on. Yeah. It will be done way early. Um, and for an icing, I used a seven minute boiled icing and it was a maple seven minute boiled icing. So maple syrup in it. I tried the cake before I put any icing on it and it was very interesting. It was very yummy. It was very moist. It tasted almost nothing like ginger. (laughs) Oops. The lemon and the lemon rind really overpowered it. 
Um, and I couldn't really taste too much of the maple syrup either. It, it mostly tasted like a lemon cake. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> that's so, interesting. I don't know why they didn't call it lemon cake <laughs> rather than maple gingerbread, but it does have maple and gingerbread in it. So yeah, so I thought, how can I make this more mapley and gingerbready? <laughs> so I did uh, this, this seven minute boiled icing and I flavored it with cinnamon and ginger uh, to give it more of that flavor I was going for. And I iced the cake and it paired really nicely together. I know I had told Sarah, oh no, what am I going to do? It's a lemon cake. <laughs> and uh, you had assured me that in ginger and lemon do go well together. And you were very right. Oh, good. <laughs> the, the icing with the extra ginger and cinnamon really paired nicely. And this is one I would definitely make again. Awesome. That yeah. does taste really <laughs> yummy, but the title is a bit misleading, I think. A little bit. <laughs> 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 Maybe they're trying to make those poor people on Prince Edward Island feel better. <laughs> <laughs> that could be true. Well, I will have images of these recipes as well at my blog for you to try out. We wanted to be able to pick recipes that anyone could make, at least in America. I, I know maple syrup is harder to get for other people overseas, but we had considered some Saskatoon berry recipes, but that's very hard to get <laughs> anywhere but Canada. <laughs> so maybe next time. Um, but yeah, you can access all these recipes on my blog. For our story highlight today, we are going to be talking about Canadian farmerettes. And Kelsey is going to tell us about them and and also about her grandmother's experience as a farmerette. As we've talked about in the 1940s, a lot of girls were made of tough stock in Canada. <laughs> they were used to hard manual labor on farms and ranches. When all of our boys and men went overseas, thousands of Canadian women and young adult girls devoted their summers to low-paid agricultural labor in Ontario and BC as members of the Farm Cadet, Farmerette, or Women's Land Brigades. This is a lesser known piece of Canadian history that I found really fascinating. My grandma took part in this movement, taking the train for the first time ever wow. to BC alone with her sister at age 16 to pick fruit in BC's interior. She remembers that her mother packed them a big paper bag lunch for the trip, but they were so excited that they'd eaten everything before they were 30 miles down the track. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> she said that the work was hard, the days were long, and her body was often sore, but it wasn't anything she hadn't done before. And she thought it was such a big adventure, traveling without parents, meeting new girls from all over Canada. She and her sister worked together as a team, lucky for her sister, who was afraid of heights. <laughs> she always held the ladder while my grandma climbed high into the trees to pick the fruit. 
my grandma thinks she may have had the short end of the stick there. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Um, Although she has passed away now, she always spoke fondly of her days as a farmerette picking fruit in BC. (laughs) When looking into the history of the farmerettes, I came across some really cute advertisements and even a diary of a farmerette in Ontario. Her diary entries were really fun to read and gave a glimpse into her life at that time. As she dates her entries, she even includes historical events such as Friday the 16th of July, invasion of Sicily began. So she was aware of what was going on. Yeah. I thought I'd read a couple of her entries to give you a glimpse um, and we can put the link to the rest of her diary on the blog. Thursday, 24th of June. Last night seems like a dream. We hoed all day today. We only worked eight hours, not nine. And even so, I was completely dead. My feet hurt most. I was actually hungry at supper for the first time. I have drunk so much water today. It just ain't funny. We had another (laughs) swim at the gravel pit in the evening. (laughs) Tuesday, 20th of July. We went with nine others to Mr. Farr's and picked cherries and raspberries. The former were 20 cents a basket and the latter 3.5 cents a pint. They were both good to eat. The raspberries were absolutely backbreaking to pick and my whole left arm began to hurt like anything. We didn't stop until 6 p.m. I made $1.99 and the guy wouldn't even give me the extra cent. Ye gods. (laughs) Saturday 24th of July. Left my hair in curlers all day. We were picking berries again. We had time for a shower before supper. Afterwards we got dressed and went to buy some grub for the binge we're having tomorrow night because of Sheila's going. We got some watermelon, cake, etc. Then back and got fixed up for the dance. We all went in early and did some practicing. I had a rotten time. Most of the time I stood around. The only dances I had were Paul Jones. (laughs) Poor Paul. (laughs) There were so many more cute entries, but this is a little teaser of what you'll find if you check out that link. I know that the land girls of England get a lot of coverage, but I wonder how many know about the Canadian farmerettes. It's a little piece of history that I love. Oh, that's so wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that story. And I, for one, can't wait to read the rest of her diary. (laughs) She sounds really fun. Yeah, she's funky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me, Kelsey, and sharing about Canadian rationing. The relationship between our two countries during World War II was important and vital. And I, for one, am happy we were allies and friends then and now. There is so much more to learn about Canadian rationing. If you're interested in learning more, you can follow Kelsey on Instagram at Kelsey Loney, as well as checking out our abundant resources that we found in our research on my blog. You can also follow some of our other Canadian friends at Recipes for Victory, that's the number four, at Grandma's Wartime Kitchen, and at Hilltop Huga Homestead. And I will have their names on my blog so that they'll be easy to find. I'm so excited for you to join me for the start of a new season of the Victory Kitchen. And uh, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Victory Kitchen Podcast. 
You can also find me on Twitter and on Facebook at Victory Kitchen Podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.